Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focused Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how goes it? Uh, it is going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great for everybody else as well. If this is the first time you are tuning in, be sure to check out all of our content. Go to FocusedCompounding.com to sign up for investment research write-ups by Jeff. Um, and go to QuickFS.net and sign up to get access to 20-year financials. Jeff and I use it every single day. It's a great platform. It's quick. That's why they call it QuickFS. Um, and tell them that you came from Focus Compounding if you do sign up. So in today's podcast, we are going to finish our Q&A that we uh, lasted a call for questions June 22nd. I said in the last okay. Q&A that we'll do, we got a bunch of questions that we'll do a part two uh, to that to answer as many questions as we can. Every now and then, if you're listening to us right now, you don't know, uh, I have a Twitter at Focus Compound. And every now and then, I will do a call for questions because we really want to talk about what is on our listeners' minds. There you go. There's a tip for creating content. Um, uh, create content for your listeners and viewers as opposed to yourself. So today we are going to learn about what is on our listeners' minds and answer as many questions as we can. Um, and the first question, uh, somebody wants to ask latest books that you've read. Uh, I have read... Um, Get on my Kindle really quick. Okay. Uh I've read some books about banks recently, which are specific bank things, and they're in print, not uh, Kindle. Mm-hmm. So I bought them used and stuff, so I don't know about recommending them. They're not expensive, but they're hard to find sometimes. Used copies? Yeah. yeah. Just because that they only exist in print. They yeah. haven't, haven't <laughs> like republished. Yeah. Um, and then I'm trying to... Th- oh, uh, you know what I've read? The most recent one that I read is... Um, Oh, I want to get the author name right. The Berkshire Hathaway book that just, uh, is it Adam Mead is the author? Is that the one where somebody said it's like the snowball, but without the sex? Is that it? <laughs> that was a review I heard about uh, okay. this book. I'm pretty sure um, it was that one. <laughs> it, very similar to capital allocation. Okay. So yeah. Was yeah. it, was it good? Was it about his bigger investments or what? Like every what year. Time? Okay. Every year. Interesting. Can we get the, can you go to Amazon so I can get the yeah. actual one because i don't want it what's the title of the book berkshire hathaway let's see if we know if i have the author right so i say at berkshire hathaway and then um there we go okay yeah it was this one the complete financial history of berkshire hathaway okay adam mead yes so yeah so i read that and that's the most recent one that on your kindle read i have it in print as well uh no i have it only in print no, no, I have it in both, print and Kindle, yeah. Was it a long book? Yes, it is long. Oh, wow, How 882 long pages. Yeah. yeah, it has pretty long footnotes. They do footnotes. Uh, they do, like, end notes. So, like, uh, notes at the end of um, every chapter instead of just notes at, at the end of the book or footnotes that you read at the bottom. I don't know that people do footnotes anymore. I guess you'd have to click them on Kindle. Uh, yeah. So if you want a year-by-year year, um, rundown of all of those things, if you were only going to read one, I would suggest reading Capital Allocation, which we talked about before. We had the uh, author on and all of that. I mm-hmm. would certainly suggest that. Um, I think that that's the easier one to read the most interesting part of Berkshire Hathaway's history. This one goes all the way, though, to today. Mm-hmm. So you're going to, when I, we talk about things like January or something, you're going to have all that, which you're not going to have. So th- I think this has a ton of information about the more recent years. And certainly if you don't read the, uh, annual letters 
uh, or even actual annual reports too, um, and are really interested in it, then I'd say like the more recent part is kind of the most different from other books. Most of the material covered, especially because capital allocation does such a good job of covering it. Um, for the earlier years, I don't think is as important. But if you want to know a lot about Berkshire in like the 21st century or something, this does go into more depth than any other book that I'm aware of. Yeah. And they don't really talk about his personal life too much in this? No, this is very financially oriented. Very much what was put in the annual reports and, and the letters. But like stuff that actually appeared in the annual reports, mm -hmm. definitely, yeah. Got it. I've been reading 69% uh, through the Caesars Palace Coop. Okay. Talking about that. Uh, I recently read So You Want to Start a Hedge Fund? Kind of more like operational stuff by Ted Seides. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. To yeah, learn yeah, a little bit one. more about just different things that other managers are doing, like on the business side, operation side. Are you thinking of starting a hedge fund? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, the Secret Life of Groceries. I sent that to you. Mm -hmm. um, I did download Bailout. Haven't even started that. So I don't know if I remember which one that is. Who's on the cover of that one? Uh, this one is no one. It's no just, one. Yeah. It's just a thing that says Bailout, an insider's account of bank failures and rescues. Oh, I like that one. Yeah, I think you recommended that. But, yeah, it's yeah. like four or five different ones that it, that it's what's it from from the '60s through the '80s. Yeah, I haven't read that yet. And then I yeah. finished uh, Richer, Wiser, Happier. Okay, but apparently I got to read uh, this Berkshire Hathaway book, this new one. I remember when they were talking not, about it on Twitter. I just I forgot that it actually right. Came it's out. not narrative at all. So you can read each chapter completely individually that way. Oh, okay. It so really just, doesn't work that way. Yeah. So it's like and a, a dictionary, an encyclopedia. Like, I want to learn about this time. Yeah. If you think um, it's closest to capital allocation, but I think in some ways it's close to like a permanent value that way. If you think of a version of, of capital, of, a version of capital allocation, so financially oriented, but more like uh, a permanent value the way it's laid out in terms like of how detailed books. it is. And, yeah. You're watching a permanent value. Yeah. So... Um, it, uh, yeah, like each chapter is like a year that way. And it's only if you really want to get in really detailed financial information and stuff, but about all the companies and things, it's much more, it, it really is about Berkshire. It's not about Buffett, you know? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah I'm going to buy that. Um, uh, let's see. What are reasonable price of sales, price of earnings, and EV to EBITDA multiples for a company like PLTR? Uh, Goes against your deep value thesis, but just curious, what are fair multiples in your eyes for the industry? Thanks. Yeah. Um, we could pull it up. PLTR. Whoops. Sure. That's Plantier Technologies. Um, yeah. So you want to take a step? You can see, as we can see here, the issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, it's nearly impossible to figure out what it should be for a few reasons. Um, one, you have very rapid growth, but you have very rapid growth with very high returns on capital because of the margins that you see there, mm -hmm. right? So you can see um, that what you're dealing with is, as you imagine, like um, we've talked about it before, of any sort of like um, almost virally growing software type things or, or something like that is nearly impossible to value except using the total addressable market approach. And that's tough because you have to assign a probability. Well, they have the total addressable market. Mm -hmm. But if something was should have a P, uh, price to sales of 30 or something, it would be something like this. And look, there's much worse companies that trade for 10 times sales. Would I rather buy this than something at 10 times sales? There's lots of companies I see that are 10 times sales now that are in similar um, industries. Their industries have those economics, but the company's own economics don't yet reflect that. Um, so... You know, it, it has a lot of the features that you'd expect in terms of the profitability that we can see. You can see with the gross profits and all of that. Um, I don't have a really good answer to that. And, yeah. I'm, and it's, I'm not sure that it's that. I mean, 
Um, it's something that you have to decide yourself that way. But, you know, we talked about Celsius and things like that. I mean, 30 times or something is a lot more than 10 times. Um, sales, too. T- sales, yeah. Um, but, you know, it, you really have to look at a few years out and stuff. So is it, like, going to grow fast enough? But the economics are good enough that, yes, it can have a very, very high multiple and be right if the growth is there. But it has to be very, very high growth. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if, the you know, with the growth, and I can't evaluate that. Because it, it would need both here. It would need very, very fast growth for the next few years. Um, uh, same individual asks, valuations are frothy currently, et cetera. But would you guys consider looking at emerging markets, India in particular? I think India would be hard for us to invest in. Yeah, we can't invest in India. Yeah. So, But what about other emerging markets? Um, I don't know. I think emerging markets are hard for me that way. I've tried. I've talked to some people in some of them. Um, the kinds of investing that we do, I think would be tough to evaluate the people involved and all of that. Um, we do look at different countries and try things from time to time to learn about that. I've talked about that with, um, you know, last time I got a bunch of emails when we had said that I had said that I don't, um, have a lot of uh, connections to people in a lot of the world, uh, with like-minded value investors. And it was nice. I got, you know, a dozen emails eventually. Um, so I responded to some of those people, but yeah, it's just really hard with the kind of approach that we take. If it, if I was a quantitative value investor purely, mm-hmm. more of a basket approach than I would invest in emerging markets. They seem the cheapest to me. Emerging market value um, does look the cheapest on any stocks around. Would you ever invest in Mexico? Uh, I don't know. I mean, Mexico is very much emerging market. I mean, it's North America, but in terms of the political atmosphere and things like that, it's, it's a very much an emerging market. Um, so it'd be similar to a bunch of other countries that way. Um, I've looked at some things in Mexico because people bring them up and stuff. Um, I guess what have I looked at there? Um, stock exchange airports. Uh, what else have I looked at? Uh, I had looked at a, indirectly at a railroad, mm-hmm. um, some things like that. I sent it to you. So we've actually kind of off topic, but we've talked about Sydney airport a lot. Yes. And they're getting acquired. Yes. So that, and it's interesting. Yeah. Even with COVID and stuff, and that's mm-hmm. not, a, it, it won't be an all time high, right? No. So they, they, so. they were, no. they were, at, they were at a price pre COVID that was higher. Right. But yeah, air, air, airport stocks have kind of held up better than they've you might done, expect. Yeah. For, they've done quite well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, they're not necessarily at much different prices than they were before. Um, COVID happened in some cases like that one, mm-hmm. which is, you know, hard to believe, right? Um, do you like mobile home manufacturers? Is Clayton Homes a good business? And someone says, isn't Clayton owned by Berkshire? Yes, it is. Clayton is owned by Berkshire. I mean, it's a good business with Berkshire's uh, backing in terms of f- financial. The capital. Yeah, yeah because, uh, you know, manufactured homes, uh, you know, are going to, unlike um, site-built homes, are going to be sold um, in many cases with the ability to do financing along with it from the company. Um, so it's like asking, do I like, you know, the car marts that used cars, you know, or do I like selling nine-year-old used cars or uh, whatever? Um, I mean, I like it if you can sell it along with a 15% loan. Um, so I think that, yeah, uh, it was a terrible industry and, and that consolidated down by a huge amount, you know? Um, I think there's a pretty strong bias against manufactured homes. I think that, you know, they can potentially make a lot of sense, obviously. And um, I think that there's always going to be some regulatory issues with it because people are going to um, write negative articles and stuff about that, I think, always. Just like what I was saying with the used car um, stuff, you know, because sometimes you have marginal buyers on the low end of what they do. 
Clean Homes, by the way, does make. I think Clean Homes makes the top of the line model might be a two hundred thousand dollar home without any uh, extra costs beyond that. Uh, but the bottom is pretty low. Um, uh, what are books or topics that have helped you with investing that have nothing to do with business or accounting? Hmm. It'd probably be like more mental model based. Yeah, I guess so. Um, psychology mindset stuff like that, uh, I would deep say. work yeah sure deep, yeah, work. deep work there you go yeah i like that i said that that was like a great productivity concept. stuff i would say yeah i thought i thought deep yeah um that was really strong for that oh i did mention um oh what is the name of it it's available online now probably maybe illegally or legally i don't know but it came out of copyright and stuff what is it oh shoot it's called um a method for thinking creatively or something like that hmm. um a technique for thinking technique for creating for what for, for thinking cre- creatively what is it let's see what comes up okay. oops what's it called a technique Anyway, um, it, written by an ad agency guy from a long time ago. Um, and uh, they might be selling it on like um, Amazon. Uh, you know, someone might have done a Kindle version or something, scanned it in or whatever. But I'm sure that it can be found um, online, uh, you know, with it, without paying for it too. Uh, but I forget if it's like 40 pages or less. But uh, I, I happen to think that it's description of, and it was, you know, a particular advertising thing, but it's a description of thinking creatively of having a, a good, useful thought about something that is investing um, was the closest to a description of how I have had good ideas as anything I've ever read. Really? Yeah. So like, can you give me an example? Well, it does a kind of, I mean, you could find other books about creative thinking in terms of research that people have done, but generally it takes a period of, in, of studying something so you read everything that you can get on it and everything and so they you know take an ad campaign you get everything about it and find out you know the gas mileage of the car and how it was put together and all these things and what the history of it is and and any of that stuff that you might possibly use in an ad anything that you could think of mm-hmm. and then you take that all together and you learn about all that stuff and then um there's a period of incubation where you're not actively thinking about the um uh about what you're trying to to do um you might generate a lot of ideas about writing things down that you might think that you're going to do and then you have you know whether it's uh working on another project often it is that gets you completely off thinking about that and then subconsciously you work on it or if you're actively thinking about it and it may be walks showers whatever things that in some way allow you to still subconsciously think about it but usually it's switching to another project yeah and um anyway it's the closest i've ever come to seeing someone actually describe that and i think it's a very very important part of investing in many ways it's like the most important is having a good idea that's just the only thing you need to do um but often when you first read about an idea or something you don't recognize it as a good idea and it's the question of how do you shift your thinking about it and see you know that it is something that you want to buy that way how do you think you do that i the the way that i talked about it Mm. yeah if I could remember what the name of the the pamphlet thing is, um, then it, if people want to know what my creative thinking process is, it's like exactly what that book describes. Interesting. Yeah. Um, 
I would say Great Courses has been interesting as well. Just learning about a bunch it's, of different things. What's its name now? Wondrium? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. We'll see if it's, what direction it's going to go into. Yeah. But yeah. But just learning history. So different yeah. like economic history, different countries, mm-hmm. about different political systems. I mean, just studying history, studying the rest of the world. Yeah. Becoming more worldly, I guess you could say, just by kind kind of allowing my interests to take me down whatever path I think could be interesting. And it, it literally could be watching a course on logic or watching a course on game theory, right. which I guess, you know, you could tie that into business, but just learning about a bunch of different things, learning about different economic systems, um, learning about the Great Depression, the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, Industrial Revolution is a good yeah. one, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. Over time, if an insurance float is expected to be costless and growing, yeah. could it be considered quasi equity? Yes. Is this better than pure equity since float equity doesn't dilute shareholders? Thanks. Yes. Well, that's true. I don't know if you get people to agree with you on that because of accounting things and stuff. Mm -hmm. People will dispute that. But yes, that's true. And by extension, by the way, I should point out, to some extent, that's true of an unrealized tax scheme. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, in that case, eventually it will be sold at some point. So it'll be worth close to zero, but it's using up no equity to do and all that. And people factor it out as if it's being um, something that you'd sell today. But it also will grow all the time over time and all that. And certainly I think that's how Buffett thinks about it, what you just said there in terms of the float, that it's better than equity. Yeah, it is. Let's see. Um, as much as we love Fintwit, do you think a lot of Fintwit is pump and dump? What makes all these fund managers on this platform different from Wall Street bets? I, I don't know. You're on Fintwit? Know <laughs> I'm not on Fintwit and I don't know enough about Wall Street bets. Uh-huh. Uh, Oops. Yeah, I don't really have an opinion on that. I don't. I mean, we don't talk about. I mean, we don't look, really. We don't talk about our tool, However, you use any anymore. Yeah, um, it's however you use anything um, that way. And to be honest, I I do like reading about things that people own themselves. Mm-hmm. I definitely like that a lot. Um, I would say Fintwit, in my opinion, it's become a lot less about ideas over the past few years, is what I've noticed. To just a lot more just about everything else. And that could be the product of people that I'm following and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think the consensus of people that come to Fintwit to use it for like an idea generation tool, I think they would also agree that it's changed, I would say. Yeah, uh, that might be true, yeah. Um, next question. We'd love to hear Jeff's thoughts for working savers in terms of 401k after match versus Roth IRA versus taxable account. I don't have any thoughts on that. Talk to your financial advisor, I would say. A financial advisor. Um, In a world dominated by intangibles and low growth, why would one only look at tangible assets in a return metric when so many companies achieve growth solely via M&A? Oh, that's a great question. I would not. I mean, when I say return on tangible assets and things like that, um, same with gross profitability, I'll mention that sometimes. That's just a constraint of the minimum of what they can, you know, of what they can make. They have to be making a good return on their net tangible assets. On top of that, you're right. If they're going to be doing M&A, they also have to have good returns on their M&A. But you really can't, um, good M&A isn't really going to fix the basic problem that it's a bad business in terms of return on net tangible assets. Um, 
but yes, I get tons of questions. It's actually one of the most common questions I get of all of like, how do I evaluate this company it grows mostly on M and A and they're making investments on your behalf. And so are they good investments? If you were making them as stock investments and things, would you judge this as good the, you know, the hurdle rates that they're clearing mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. Um, and you know, it has to work both ways. I do warn people a lot about that where they say this company has a 30% return on equity. It does. The core business, you know, is doing that. But then it's going out and buying things. And because of the price that it's paying, if it's paying six times book for things that are grow- that have a 30% return equity, you know, you're not getting a 30% return on your M&A. You're getting an unacceptably low return on your M&A and a really great return on the continuing business. And so in the long run, that's not always great. And we've talked about companies that have done that and how you have to take that into account, you know. Uh, I think I talked about Middleby. We talked about Transdime, things like that. Um they're, uh, I mean, they, in many cases, own businesses that I think are good businesses, but I don't think that their M&A uh, returns on their M&A necessarily ma- on leverage match, you know, that kind of good business. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people are counting both of those things. They're saying it like this is a fast growing business. Um, yeah, it's fast growing because of the M&A and the M&A has much lower returns than the, you know, the organic business. How can you identify persistent revenue growth beforehand? I'd say the nature of the business, what they're doing. Yeah, it's a lot of scuttlebutt. It's, you know, and, and logic, and, you know, what's reasonable, what isn't. But a lot of scuttlebutt of asking how did they get this kind of um, revenue growth. Understand the sales cycle. Yeah. Is it, um, you know, do we, are, are you selling more of a product? Um, are you selling more of a product and stuff without much of a marketing push behind it? That's really good if that's happening under investment in marketing, under investment in sales and stuff. And yet you're selling more of the product every year. I like to see that the product selling itself. Um, that's one of the strongest ones. Uh, other one is some hints that your prices are too low. I mean, you know, that you don't raise your prices each year and probably should raise them a little bit. There are ways to figure that out either by talking to people in the industry or just looking at things that way. But usually it's a lot of organic stuff, a lot of stuff that just seems to be growing without much effort, um, attention, but without much attention by management, without actual investment in assets, a lot of investment in advertising, marketing, a lot of changing things. And yet you're driving sales growth, you know, kind of effortless sales growth. Um, the kind of things we look at at much lower um, growth and stuff in them, but it is kind of the same idea of like something going viral. It's the product is selling itself somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, as it, what's harder to tell is when there's a big push behind something and is it mostly being sold because of that, you know, um, because of a big marketing push into it and, and all of that. Uh, and especially like consistent growth in something that doesn't seem to have much sales effort behind it in an industry in which, you know, that means they're gaining market share. So industry isn't growing that much, but this particular product mm-hmm. sells more units every single year and uh, they don't cut their prices ever and stuff. You know, that's, that's a really good sign. Yeah, that's a good sign. Do you adjust your investing strategy based on market conditions or is it buy and hold no matter what? Um, I mean, it's basically buy and hold no matter what if you're comparing it to market conditions. But if you mean selling something you own to buy something that's even better, that's more of what I'm comparing it to. Mm-hmm. So it, I would not sell something just because I think it's gone up and it's going to go down. But I would definitely sell something uh, to buy something that's a lot cheaper and just as good or something like that. So, you know, I'm, n- I'm not going to just be holding on to something that's at 40 times earnings because something just as good is at 10 because I do buy and hold. Um, but not because of like macro market conditions or something like that. 
but always comparing to like, do I have something better to buy that I want to buy a lot of? So like funding something new to buy. Yes. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's do a couple more. Okay. Are you always fully invested or what do you do with cash while waiting to deploy? Hold cash, S&P 500, T-bills, strips, or some other negatively correlated instrument? Question mark. How much percentage cash is too much where it becomes a drag on long-term performance? I mean, you can do the math on how much it becomes a drag on performance. Um, you know, if you think you're going to have a 10% return or something, you just apply that to the amount that you don't have invested. So, you know, if you don't have 20% invested, then you've got a drag of like, you know, 2%. And so that's a huge drag. It's bigger than the expenses on most funds and things that you'd be invested in. So, you know, in theory, 20% is way too much. Mm-hmm. But in practice, for a lot of individual investors, depending on what they're doing, picking stocks, it is better to go slower um, especially if you have a big inf- inflow of a lot of money at once, you know, let's say you're starting an account that you haven't invested in anything before. I would not go, let's say you have $200,000 to invest. I would not go and say, let me try to get all that invested in the next six months. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's say three or four years down the road, can you then be investing a hundred percent? Yeah, you probably could because you know, this year's savings can go into one new idea it's hard to have a lot of new ideas at the same time or even to have a lot of ideas that are good at the same time and be able to evaluate them all. So it, I think, you know, I think it's good to be fully invested. I mean, that, you know, there's a significant positive return in most years to the market, especially to just owning good businesses on average. Mm-hmm. So if you pick the right businesses, it's better to be in them than not. So if you have the ability to pick good businesses, then even if the prices are a little high, it's probably going to work out better than cash in the long run. But the one caveat that I would say with that is do not rush to um, buy a couple things at the same time. Give yourself some time to make each purchase separately, make the final valuation of each one. And so, you know, if you ever have a situation where you just come into some money or whatever, and you're like, I want to own 10 stocks, 10 stocks might be fine, but don't try to buy 10 stocks in a year. Um, Allow yourself to have, even though it sounds absurd, a 50% cash position in the first year, if that's what you need to make sure you aren't buying any really bad um, businesses, things you don't know anything about, you know, and it just because you have to get down to your 10th best idea. Mm-hmm. So I just say like, take it slow, but aiming for being hundred percent invested isn't a bad idea for people. And especially if you're in liquid stuff, you can do that. If you're in illiquid stuff, it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, last question. What do you think about using the Kelly criterion for portfolio construction and optimization? How would you utilize it? So, I mean, I don't use the Kelly criterion the way that they talk about it. uh, And I don't think I kind of agree with how most people have talked about it. Mm -hmm. Um, However, I think that if you break down the Kelly criterion and the ideas of what it's talking about, the Kelly formula that we're talking about, um, I think it's really useful. Um, So the sense that one, obviously, if you don't have an edge, you shouldn't be investing anything. And you can see that in the math of what they're talking about there. Um, two, it's going to depend on what your loss um, uh, size, potential loss that you're going to have in it is. So obviously, and this is where we get to the Buffett side of things, Buffett tries mostly to invest in things in equities uh, for the long term in which he sees very little to no chance of a loss. Um, that's going to have a big effect that I see ignored often in the Kelly Criterion stuff where they're talking about it as if there's a, you know, um, this is a, an advantage over something else because it offers slightly higher returns maybe, but you know, it, 
it, the, the question is what is a winning bet of it versus a losing bet the example that they use like a horse race or something well you'll lose all your money on the horse race a stock doesn't work like that so that's a very significant part of it um and that explains a lot of diversification is that you know an index is going to be uh more attractive than a stock that's equally priced with the index because the stock could go to zero the index will never go to zero um putting that stuff aside the main thing is the bigger your edge in something the bigger your bet should be the smaller your edge the smaller the bet and i agree completely with that part of it so i would say i often get numbers that might be similar to the kelly criterion that way in terms of that your bet should be much bigger and much less frequent um i don't think understanding the kelly criterion or worrying about calculating it is at all important um many different just more so like the principles that you take from it yeah i, I mean i think that if you look at the size that buffett has given as a percent of berkshire hathaway's equity um or as a percent of berkshire Hathaway's portfolio um which at times is the only thing you can reallocate um he comes much closer to kelly criterion approach um than almost any other investors so you have to ask yourself why that is you don't have to say well it's because the, he in some sense uses the kelly criterion or something but you have to ask why is that why is one of the world's most successful investors come much closer to doing what the kelly criterion should say was 99.9 percent .9 investors never do that mm -hmm. it can be luck um because if he's making very big bets that way then that would make it more likely that he'd have you know very big winners uh, uh that it, what winners he'd have over time would contribute such a big amount to his results that it's just like taking really big risk that way but the other possibility is that he kind of is following that approach i think it's the biggest difference between buffett and graham and buffett and most people who follow buffett is his position sizing um even as an individual investor if you look about the snowball or anything else that talks about it what he seems to have put in whether it's arbitrage type situations he got involved with um or things like geico or whatever with his own money um whether it was net nets he never was sizing those positions at anything near what books and things about them tell you you should he never used the kind of sizing that a mutual fund would use it was always buy as much as you possibly can yeah and buy very uneven amounts so uh, the net net he liked best got a much bigger sizing than something else uh, and as he followed a situation and liked it better he was willing to buy more of it and you'd be surprised sometimes he bought more stocks at much higher prices actually than when he originally was buying into them and seems to have bought them for a period of years but still if he thought the situation was more favorable he was willing to go really big in terms of the sizing mm. of it. Sometimes that might've been a catalyst, something else, but definitely he was his favorite of a category of stock he was willing to go really big into. He put most of his net worth into Geico as an individual. He didn't say, oh, based on what I studied about Geico, I like the insurance industry pretty well now too. So maybe I'll put you know most of it in Geico, but the rest in other insurance companies or something. He doesn't do that. Um, and he's only done that really for the most part when just ideas have been you could buy anything and make money um like a market bottom he sometimes has done that kind of thing just to put money to work and then he's also done it um as he's gotten so big that it's just not possible so with airlines and railroads things like that he did it um but otherwise he really focuses on much bigger sizing and i think that that makes a lot of sense and i think that position sizing is one of the most important things you're going to have as an investor but 
I think the Kelly criterion and what Buffett did tells you nothing about how you're going to react to those position sizes mm -hmm. for you personally. And so for your psychology, it may not work for Munger psychology, for Buffett psychology, for Claude Shannon psychology, apparently, um, that kind of thing makes a lot of sense. And they didn't have any problem with those sorts of sizing. It's certainly theoretically correct. I mean, the idea of applying that idea uh, from a totally different field into how do you compound your money at the highest possible rate over time, um, you know, theoretically it's right. The question is whether temperamentally it works for you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But if someone tells you there's some other way to do it that will work out better, no, it's wrong. It will. The California will work better. Other ways can just give you better risk-adjusted returns. You could say, depending on how you measure risk. But it's not true that any other program of diversification that you could have or whatever is ever going to give you better returns than than basically betting your edge. Yeah. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for asking the questions. Be on the lookout for future Q and As by following me at Twitter uh, on Twitter at at Focused Compound. I want to thank everybody so much for tuning with us. Sign up at quickfs.net and tell them that you came from Focus Compounding. Uh, help support everything that we do here on the podcast. I want to thank everybody so much for the support. Hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, and we will see you in the next podcast.